If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 5. The book of James chapter 5. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, asked the question, suppose we woke up one morning and found that God had removed two things from the Bible. First, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Second, the reality of prayer. And we would begin to live our lives on the basis of this new Bible. Would our lives be any different? Well, today, on the first Sunday of 2021, which we find ourselves in the midst of a plague, I think we can and we should ask ourselves the same questions. Suppose we woke up this morning, January 3rd, 2021, and found out that God had removed two things from the Bible, the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the reality of prayer. We would begin to live our lives based on this new Bible. Would our lives be any different? In a book in, by Craig Gay entitled The Way of the Modern World or Why It's Tempting to Live as Though God Does Not Exist, he makes a statement in the concluding chapter, prayer is perhaps the church's single most important witness to the living God. He continues, at least so long as prayer is not itself surrendered to the therapeutic or to the logic of technique. That is, living when and where we do, and particularly now in the midst of a plague, there is a strong temptation to reduce prayer to a means to an end. We want something and so we pray. Or a way to improve our own well-being whether it is crassly self-centered or a way to gain something else, like prosperity, or to achieve a sense of personal well-being. One of the pressures that we face in the modern world, and one would argue it's unique to the modern world, is secularization. It is a process by which, in the modern world, the central uh, sectors of society have been neutralized in terms of the influence of religion. The transcendent, the supernatural, the metaphysical, if you wish, has been removed. And this, one of the things that has struck me about this pandemic that we have been experiencing is it is quite a secular event. I hear very few people talking about metaphysical aspects of it. Um, it seemingly is all about the science which doesn't seem as powerful as we had once imagined. Oh, there was a National Day of Prayer. That was back in May, eight months ago. And now the state has, in some instances, taken on the role of telling churches and believers what they can do and what is appropriate. I think more than anything, what I find in this pandemic is its impact on prayer. In a secularized society in which we live, prayer can be reduced to technique, a how-to. It's how to get what we want. That's what Craig Gay warned us against. In a pluralistic society in which we live, prayer is reduced to one of several options. You know, pray and keep your fingers crossed. Even before the pandemic, I don't know if you remember, uh, in the midst of tragedies, people would say, we're keeping you in our prayers. And people are like, 
will you please stop saying that prayer doesn't do anything? It's only seen as one option among many. In a privatized world in which we live, you know, your faith is privately engaging but socially irrelevant, prayer is reduced to something I do for myself as well as by myself. As in, give me this day my daily bread. In fact, some might argue that this privatized view of prayer is reinforced by the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. While we are not to pray to be seen by others, it doesn't mean that praying in secret is a privatized or self-centered form of praying. When we enter into prayer, we should be aware of our relationship to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and our relationship to God's people. I am not the only one who needs my daily bread. Other people need daily bread as well. I am not the only one who is dependent upon God for life itself. I am not the only sinner in the world in need of forgiveness. I am not the only one being tested. I am not the only one in need of God's grace. This is true of all my brothers and sisters. So when we enter into prayer, our horizons change to include God's people. I think in the midst of this pandemic, I don't know if you've experienced this, our horizons seem to shrink. It all seems to be about me and perhaps my family and maybe my friends, maybe the people I know, but uh, horizons have really shrunk, when in reality they are to expand. What I would like for us to do today is to begin to consider what James says about prayer. If you look in James chapter 5, I'll read this a couple times, but here at the beginning, and beginning in verse number 13. James 5.13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I think a wonderful passage, but we can't just jump into this, into this passage, without considering the context and the background. So let me give you a bit of that. The book of James is written by James. We think it was perhaps one of the first, if not the first, of the New Testament books to be written. James was the son of Joseph and Mary, and therefore, like Jude, in the epistle of Jude, was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem, which was not one congregation, but people were meeting in houses. Um, We might call them church houses, or church, house churches today, um, Don't know that that's appropriate, but James was seen as the head of the believers there in Jerusalem. When Stephen was martyred, he was the first Christian martyr 
the church scattered. And we read that it scattered first in Judea and Samaria, so relatively close, still in Palestine, but then later on they moved out of Palestine uh, into other areas. And sometime after that, we're not sure when, I would say less than a decade, James wants to check on the people who have left, who have moved away. He wants to see how they're doing. And so he writes them a letter, but he does something rather unusual. It is actually a sermon in the guise of a letter. If you're familiar with Paul's writings at all or the other epistles, Peter's, for example, this doesn't follow that formula. This is, strictly speaking, a sermon that he sent out as a letter. For some time in the modern age, beginning in the Reformation, and due mainly to Martin Luther in my mind, the book of James has suffered from really bad PR. And one of, one of the complaints about the book of James is its lack of organization. Luther said that uh, it was throwing things together chaotically, that there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to the book of James. And I would argue that this is simply not the case. What we have in the book of James is an extended introduction, chapter 1, at the end of which James brings up three points. And then in chapters 2, 3, 4, and the first six verses of chapter 5, we have the three points expanded. And now in chapter 5, beginning in verse number 7, it is a conclusion. So, like any good sermon, it has an introduction, it has the body, and it has a conclusion. In the conclusion, James comes full circle. He talks about the things in the conclusion that he did in the introduction. Okay? There are three major points, and I'm not into alliteration at all, but there are three Ps, patience, perseverance, and prayer. In verses 7 to 12, which we'll read in a few moments, you'll find seven references to patience. And in the passage we just read, there are seven references to prayer. And the point that James wants to make that we need to learn is that the path of patient endurance, of perseverance, is the way of prayer. One could argue you cannot be patient and persevere without prayer. And prayer, one could argue, is in fact the result of patient endurance. When James speaks of patience and perseverance, we have an expectation, if you've read the book of James, that James is going to flesh this out. And what he tells us is that patience is not passive. It's not passive inactivity. You just sort of hold on, grin and bear it, and, and this too will pass. Um, not at all. Look, if you would, at beginning at verse number 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, take, uh, brothers as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth, or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. 
And then, verse number 13, he begins to talk about prayer. And let me read it again to you. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This section on prayer has four parts. First part, verse number 13, the praying individual. In verses 14 and 15, the praying elders. Verse 16, the first part, praying friends. And then finally, the praying prophet, the story of Elijah. But I think before we get to prayer, we have to talk about patience and perseverance. By patience, we take James to mean the self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. Doesn't seek to strike out. By perseverance or steadfastness, we take him to mean the temper which does not easily succumb or collapse under suffering. James opened his sermon with a call to patient perseverance. And he reminded his readers that persevering through God-sent afflictions, God-sent afflictions and difficulties of life is the path of sanctification. It is the road to becoming perfect and complete. If you have your Bibles, if you'd look in chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This pathway of patient perseverance is linked to the pathway of prayer. Because if you look at the next verse, verse number five, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, that is, he should pray, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. When he asks, that is, when he prays, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. That's how he starts the sermon. And now we come to the conclusion of the sermon, and he brings up the same three points. But there is a, there is a difference. In chapter 1, when he talked about patient perseverance, he was talking about external circumstances. God sent afflictions, those things outside of us. Now here at the end of the sermon, he comes a little bit tighter in and he talks about the factors within ourselves. So it is with prayer. In chapter one, he talks about we should ask God if we lack wisdom. Now here at the end, he talks about praying for the needs of others. But let's, let's look at patience first and then we will get to prayer. Verses seven through nine. And here he talks about patience, and it is not an abrupt change of subject from the first six verses of chapter 5. In the first six verses, he's been talking about rich people who hoard, who cheat, who oppress the people that work for him. And I think it is no stretch of the imagination to imagine that, in fact, 
the Christians he's writing to, the Jewish believers, we find some of them in each camp. Some of them are well-to-do and they are not treating their workers fairly. Others are workers and they are not being, tr- being treated fairly by those that they work for. When James calls on them to be patient, this is not some theoretical or abstract argument he's trying to make. It very much touched the lives of his readers there in the first century. I think it does ours as well here in the 21st century. James is writing to people for whom wisdom is the last thing on their minds. That's the last thing they're thinking about, being patient. He's writing to people for whom patience would be a very difficult task. If you're a day laborer, you get paid at the end of the day and you've not gotten paid, how are you going to feed your family? And he's writing to people for whom patience might seem to be a betrayal of their rights. Why should I be patient? I should, I owe, he owes me that. I should be paid what I am owed. So James begins his conclusion after writing about these people who are hoarding and mistreating their workers. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Be patient, by the way, is not a suggestion. It is an imperative. It is a command. Okay. James is not saying, I think you all should be patient. He's like, be patient. But then he sort of softens it, if you wish. He tempers it by saying, brothers. Okay. He's not sort of beating over the head here at the end of his sermon, but rather to his brothers and sisters, he wants them, in fact, to be patient. It is interesting that Jesus was a carpenter, and many of his disciples were fishermen, but James seems to be much more tied to farming. His analogies, his illustrations come much more from farming. Um, An occupation which requires a great deal of patience. The farmer plants the seeds at an appropriate time, waits for conditions, and then waits some more. He points to the farmer in Palestine. They didn't use irrigation, but rather they, re- they um, relied on two seasons of rain, the early and the late rain. The NIV has it, the autumn rains and the spring rains. The early rain came in October, It prepared the soil for the farmers to plant. The late rain came in March and April, and it enlarged the grain and, in fact, guaranteed a good crop. But the farmer had to wait. He was, if you wish, at the mercy of weather patterns, or in reality, at the mercy of God. We, as God's people, must wait as well. We don't have the benefit that the farmers had of knowing, oh, there are going to be two seasons of rain. Um, We don't know that, but in fact, we are supposed to wait. In the introduction, in chapter 1, James tells his readers indirectly that faith meets trials through patience, not without it. You've got to be patient. And through it, we gain maturity. We do not drift into holiness. We do not drift, sort of slide, you know, just put it in cruise or put it in neutral and just sort of glide into becoming mature believers. We must grow. It is a process. It requires patience. And one day the Lord will return. 
and he will make all things right. But patience, waiting on the Lord, is not a passive activity. James tells his readers to do two things. First of all, stand firm. It's one of the things that James deals with throughout his letters, inconsistency. Um, I don't know, but I imagine that he has heard things. That word has gotten back to Jerusalem, that the believers who have gone out are not living consistent lives. They are double-minded, chapter 1. They discriminate between the rich and the poor, in chapter 2. Chapter 3, with, their, with the same tongue, they bless and they curse. In chapter 4, the friendship with the world while claiming to be the people of God. They're highly inconsistent. And here, James uses the same verb that we hear Jesus using in Luke chapter 9. So as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for, for Jerusalem. James calls on his readers to be resolute. They are to be fixed on the reality that one day Jesus will return and he will make all things right. They are to stand firm. I suspect that the second coming is not a popular topic. But I would also suspect that if this pandemic gets far, far worse, people then might begin to start thinking about the second coming and it might be a good thing. The second thing that James tells them, which doesn't seem to make sense, at least in first reading, is don't grumble against each other. The call to patience makes sense only in situations when there is a temptation to impatience. As James sees it, this is often in terms of our relationship to other believers. Here he revisits, or at least the readers should revisit chapters 3 and 4, in which he talked about the tongue being used for cursing, the wars and fightings, disorder among God's people, and the slandering of one another. and we become impatient. Somebody says something about us, somebody does something to us, we become impatient. And James says, stand firm, be resolute, and don't grumble. In verses 10 to 12, James writes about the blessedness, if you wish, of being steadfast. And he makes three points here. First of all, we have reason to expect that in our experience, we will suffer. I know that this is contrary to what many of us have been taught in the past, particularly here in this country, that in fact, our lives should go smoothly. Um, the reality is we may well suffer. Okay? And patience is called for. We have reason to expect in our experience, a kind of suffering that will require us to be patient. Secondly, he points out that when you look to the Old Testament, and at this point the New Testament has not yet been written, he's writing to people who only have the Old Testament, we look back on these people who suffered and were patient, and we said, these guys are blessed. What blessed people they are. And somehow in the process we forget their suffering. Or we imagine that we can go straight to the blessed, being blessed part without going through the suffering part. 
And James would remind his readers that in fact we see people who persevered patiently and we consider them blessed for having done so. The third thing he does is he brings up the example of Job. And last Sunday we just finished our study in the book of Job. And let me ask you, those of you who have been with me through this, would you say that Job persevered? One writer argued, in fact, that he didn't. Few of us would single out Job as a model of faithful endurance in the midst of suffering. He is pictured as a bit self-righteous, overly insistent on getting an explanation for his unjust sufferings from the Lord. So some would say, yeah, James, I, I think you need to pick somebody else. Maybe Joseph, you know, when his brother sold him and then Potiphar put him in jail. Job? One, another writer answers, Job is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied. But the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. Patient perseverance doesn't mean you just sort of hold on for the ride and hope that things will get better. That's not what Job did. And I think when, when James calls on his readers to be patient and to persevere, he's not doing that either. And in fact, patience is not passive. James wants his readers, he wants us to know that the Lord has a purpose in all that we go through. Let me ask you, would you like to experience what Job did? Well, the last part of the book of Job, yeah, that's cool. Everything doubled. You know. But would you want to experience what Job did? And I think my first reaction is absolutely not. But as the result of what Job went through, he had a revelation of God, as we saw last week, the God of all grace. Was that not worth it? At the end, Job knew that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, as sometimes is the case, as we're making an outline or trying to figure out a passage, something pops up that sort of destroys the outline, and verse number 12 is that. Because what is it that, why does James throw this in? Um, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Above all, my brothers, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Um, what is James talking about and why does he do it in the midst of talking about patience, perseverance, and prayer? It doesn't seem to fit the three Ps there. What he's talking about are the formal oaths where someone swears in court, Okay. Um, but James has talked, has written about the tongue quite a bit here in chapter 3, that we need to watch what we say. I think what he is saying, without being overly simplistic, is that our speech should not be flowery. It should be unadorned. Now, obviously, we should not use profanity, bad language. We should not use God's name in a light way. Um, and we should even not use unnecessary, expletive seems too strong a word, but just unnecessary words, if you wish. 
Now let me ask you something. If you look back on your life, I think you would agree that God has graciously brought us through difficulties. He brought us into difficulties and through the difficulties in order to bring us nearer to himself. As a result of what we have suffered, we are now closer to God. And as we get older, we can look back, because it's finished, we can look back with gratitude for what God has done, the benefits we have received through going through these periods of darkness and suffering. But we may also regret some of the things we said when we were in the midst of the suffering. We may be like Job and say, you know, I spoke of things too wonderful for me. I, I was out of my mind. I was saying things that I should not have said. I think this is what James has in mind. That patient perseverance means that as we go through these difficulties, we just really need to be careful what we say. We need to know that, in fact, God is in control and doing what is best for us. And with that in mind, talking about speaking words, he now turns to prayer. And that's what we find in verse number 13. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 1, he talks about prayer mainly with regard to our own welfare. How we can individually be on the right course. But here at the end, he's present, he presents prayer in the service of others. Not initially, in verse number 13. But beyond that, lest I think we think of prayer only of what I can get from God, he wants us to think of praying for others. So, today we'll look at the first part, the principle of prayer for the individual, verse number 13. And as I said, the transition is smooth. He goes from being careful what you say to now he talks about prayer. And he opens the section by saying, is any one of you in trouble? In the King James, is anyone among you afflicted? Uh, the same word is used in verse number 10 for suffering. And I think it means more than sufferings of sickness. Be that as it may, James puts it together, suffering with, in fact, being happy. One could argue the negative and the positive aspects of life. So, is any one of you in trouble? Are you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone happy? He should sing songs of praise. What is the natural response to suffering? And I don't want to be spiritual here if you're a holy person. What is the natural human response to suffering? I would say it's anger. Rebellion against God. Why are these things happening to me? And at the same time, we would abandon certain things that, in fact, should be part of our daily practices. Prayer, study of scripture, being with God's people, the church, loving our neighbor. But we're so focused on our suffering that, in fact, we set these aside. What is the natural response when things go well? I would argue complacency, laziness, and the assumption that, hey, everything's cool. I'm able to deal with whatever comes my way. And we abandon certain activities. 
like prayer, study of scripture, God's people. So if things are going really well, we forget. If things aren't going well, we tend to be angry and we forget. James says, when you're suffering, pray. And when you are good in heart, when you're happy, sing songs of praise. So neither suffering nor ease should find us without a suitable response. As God's people, we are always to be directed toward him. If things are looking really, really bad, we should pray. If things are looking really good, we should sing songs of praise. John Calvin wrote, James means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. There's no time in our life when God says, yep, that's fine, you don't need to think about me, just just go your own way. No, when things are dark, we should pray. When things are bright, we should praise God in in, in singing songs of praise. What do they have in common, by the way? Prayer and songs of praise. Well, I would argue that prayer acknowledges that God is sufficient to meet our need. That's why we pray. And praise acknowledges that God, in fact, has been sufficient and he has arranged our circumstances in what we would call a positive way. So whether he is the source in need or the source of gladness and joy, God is sufficient. But I think James would be unhappy with us, be unhappy with me, if I take from this verse that the bare proposition is that God is all-sufficient. Well, that's what James is trying to say. Um, James tells us we are not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. So this isn't simply a passive thing like, oh, yes, yes. James, we got it. God is all-sufficient. No. We are to act. That means we are to pray and we are to sing songs of praise. By the way, uh, pray. Uh, If anyone of you is in trouble, he should pray. Imperative. If anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. Imperative. It's not a suggestion. Not, you know, it might be a good thing if you did this. It is, in fact, a command. Our whole lives should be so angled toward God that whatever strikes us, whether it be joy or sorrow, our thoughts are toward God. When things are bright, when things are dark, we should be looking to his presence. Either in prayer or in praise. But the foundation of this is patient perseverance, patient endurance. The Lord willing, we'll continue the study next week when we will look at the praying elders, the praying friends, and the praying prophet, Elijah. But I thought today it would be important for us to set the context, not only for this sermon, but hopefully for the rest of this year, of what James is trying to tell us. That we are to be patient, we are to endure, and we are to pray. I wonder sometimes if our prayer lives are less than they should be because there is no patience. And I wonder if our prayer lives are less than they should be because there is no endurance. Are you in trouble? You should pray. Are you happy? You should sing songs of praise.
Let's pray together. Our Father, in the words of Jesus, or what the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. We thank you for what James tells us, that which we so easily forget, the call for active patience, for active endurance, and for prayer. We do live in a time in which prayer has been reduced. Reality, though, we can't blame others. We should take the share of the blame ourselves. That prayer simply becomes a means to an end. And this time of a plague, boy, we could sure use a means to an end. But that's not what prayer is. We are to pray in the midst of patient endurance. One could argue that this plague has gone on long enough, that patience is not the right call right now. I think it's because we misunderstand patience. We'd see it as being passive and sitting on the sidelines. We actively are to trust you and by your grace actively stand firm. By your, spe- by your spirit, may we watch our speech, things we say in difficult times. Above all, may we pray. Here we are at the beginning of a new year. We don't know what this year will bring. You do. You've already prepared the way ahead of us. May we trust you. And above all, may we look to you in prayer. I thank you for this first day of a new week, the Lord's Day. Prepare us as we go out to face another week. May your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray for those that are afflicted, those who are suffering. In particular, we think of Riza and ask that you would raise them up. We thank you for your love, which you showed to us supremely in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.